Welcome to Into the West, the Middle Earth SVG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. My name is Charles, and with me are Richard, Ian, and Alexander. And we are back with season number two. Thank you to all our fans who patiently waited for these new episodes. We hope that you enjoy them. In this episode, our main topic will be Lords of Battle. And in our open topic, we'll be discussing randomized scenario packs versus pre-selected scenarios. So what we'll be talking about in our main episode is the match play scenario Lords of Battle. And this week, it will be a little bit different from the other weeks. When I say that, it's because we have recently played at a local tournament called Toshred Cabers, and it was a 600-point tournament. Lords of Battle was one of the scenarios at that event. So it was a good versus evil event, and everyone brought two lists to play at the event. In today's episode, we will each be talking about lists that we use to play in the context of this scenario. So just to go over this scenario, just to familiarize with uh, the details and the objectives and things like that, the starting positions for Lords of Battle each player deploys within 24 inches of the board edge on their side. So you can deploy up to the line in the middle. And the game ends when a one or two is rolled once one side is broken. And if uh, you don't roll one or two, the game continues for another turn. For the victory points, this one is largely focused on inflicting wounds on your enemy. So you want to score as many wounds as possible. And the main objective, you score three points if you have a higher wound tally than an opponent. You score five victory points if you have at least double of your opponent. And you score seven points if you score at least three times the amount of your opponent or if you table them. You score one victory point for wounding your enemy leader and two points if you kill your enemy leader. And you score one point if your enemy is broken at the end of the game and three points if they're broken and you're not broken. And there's one final special rule for this scenario, and that is every time you kill a hero, one of your heroes in the same fight regains a point of might earlier spent. So what are your guys' general thoughts on this scenario? Because we do see it a lot locally, and I think all of us are pretty familiar with it because we, we play it, I would say, you know, almost at every tournament. So... For being very familiar with this scenario, you know, it's like your, the most basic kind of one you can have. I don't know about you guys, but forgetting about that regaining might rule, like every time I play it. And at least at this tournament, I don't think it came up in the game that I played. I don't know. Did you guys, did you guys get it to work? Did you remember it? <laughs> it came up in my game and I remembered it. And I was so proud of myself, like way too proud of myself for simply remembering one special rule made a huge difference because I spent the King's Champions last might point immediately got it straight back and got to do something else. Great times. Loved it. A plus five out of five would recommend. Personally, it didn't come up in my game, but I think this scenario is really popular because of how straightforward it is inflicting wounds on on each other and you don't have to kind of you know you don't get punished as much if your army 
doesn't have like mobility or or if it doesn't have a particularly strong leader or anything like that just because it's like a account for your for your overall force and maybe the other reason why it's so popular is because like it's a good scenario to include to counter horde armies just because um i feel like there's been more horde armies in recent years than before yeah those are some good reasons i think what i like about it is like you guys said it's it's really straightforward like it has something for the more experienced player as well as the beginner players the beginners can treat it like to the death just kind of ignore the um, different objectives and just focus on killing like you'll pretty much do that anyway but for the more experienced players you can focus on things like killing the heroes and regaining your might back and also like when you're fighting cavalry you strike at horses before you strike at the rider to get some extra wounds in there so that's something that i did in my game and also um you know if a hero is going to die anyway maybe you don't burn fate and you just let the hero die to save a couple wound points as well so those are just you know some small tips so those are actually like uh, the good points that charles brought up about just how it is kind of like a more simple scenario and like we said it's like the basic one and it counters hordes like it is a counter to hordes hordes can still win it but it's it's complicated math to win it with hordes but i wanted to touch on that one point that you said is like part of the reason we picked this scenario and that we picked to put it in the pack as the first scenario is that this is like our first major tournament back in a year and a half. And we just want people to get, you know, familiar with being on a timer again, <laughs> trying to play games in a day and having like a really easy one just to kind of like get people's toes back in the water, I think was kind of where we were, what we were thinking with picking that one and having it go first. Yeah. I don't know if it's just me, but I find that Lords of Battle is typically at the end of the, or like the second half of the tournament. Uh, maybe I'm just thinking like Nova Open and a couple other events that, so I was a little bit surprised when I saw it was the first scenario. Well, um, to be fair, uh, Nova Open was a random roll, right? So <laughs> no one got to choose that. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's true. Locally, we've uh, we've done Lords of Battle as a final scenario a couple times at least. But yeah, it, it was an interesting first scenario. So I guess I guess it's popular. People generally like it. I guess we'll go into some lists. And before we do that, I just want to say, like, I think there are definitely some armies that are really good and some armies are really not very strong in this scenario. Richard brought up that, and Ian's brought up that it's like a counter to hordes. So hordes generally, they're not as favored to win in this one just because they usually suffer more casualties. What kind of lists would you guys say that are like good in it? I guess one of them would probably be the opposite of a horde, right? Like a like an all hero list would probably this would probably be one of the ones they would be good at. Maybe not like guaranteed to win, but they'd probably be stronger at it. I'm gonna go ahead and just you know the first dwarf plug of season two. I think dwarf lists usually do pretty good in this, you know, reasonable model count, but not crazy high. But at the same time troops with high defense strong heroes in combat things that usually can deal more damage than they take anything that can do that usually and i think dwarves are a pretty good example of that well all of you will know this you know uh blinding light shooting heavy armies <laughs> love it but also i think like uh like all cav armies 
like any kind of Rohan army or like Riders of Thaden kind of army loves this because especially like specifically in the sense of a tournament because they can do a lot of damage and they can do a lot of damage quickly so if they can just tally up a really high score at the start even if their opponent starts catching up the game time is probably going to end before that differential will be caught up i i don't know because like the point i brought up earlier with the the cav because generally cav armies you're not going to have a lot of models but with the horses that's a lot of wounds and like if you're facing an army that can shoot like that's a lot of horses that might go down so i don't know if i was uh fielding an all cav army i think i wouldn't really want to be playing lords of battle so like the points cost per wound yes a cav army probably the same as like an all infantry because if you think like rider rohan is about twice the amount of points as a warrior of rohan so it's like the same amount of wounds but the wounds are concentrated on less models so i agree with richard like you will lose wound count faster because when you lose a fight, both the horse and the rider lose and they they take the strikes. So and my final game at Adepticon was was against a Rohan player. With my Mahud Raider impacts, I was able to take out a lot of horses. So I actually felt like I was very favored in that last scenario in Lords of Battle. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with Ian on this one, but maybe in certain situations they can inflict more wounds, but... I think it's one of those interesting situations. Ian brings up the ability sometimes with an army like all-mounted Rohan to charge into your opponent quickly, do a lot of damage early. A lot of it, though, in a situation like that is based on whether or not you can control the next turn and back out and dictate movement. If they charge in and don't have a great first turn and then lose priority the next turn, they become very vulnerable. If you can do that kind of damage early in a scenario where you are going for a wound tally, if you do enough damage, you might be able to get your opponent to panic, make some irrational decisions, and that might also help you. Next, we'll be each talking about lists that we brought to the event and go over what our thought process was for this particular scenario, whether we actually played in Lords of Battle with that list or not. Just for all listeners, this was a 600-point event. And it was an hour and 30 minutes per game. So why don't we have Richard go first? Okay, so I brought two lists. Let's start with my uh, slightly more themey list here. That would be my evil. I have Deburz as the leader. He is leading seven Moria goblins with shield, three with spear, two with bow, one bat swarm. And then the next warband is a Moria goblin captain leading seven Moria Goblins with shield, three with spear, uh, the Watcher in the Water. The Watcher in the Water is in its own warband. And then the last warband is the Spider Queen allied in, leading a Bat Swarm. So that's 28 models. And my good list was Denethor as the leader, leading five Warriors of Minas Tirith with shield, three with shield and spear, uh, two Rangers of Gondor with spear, Hurin with horse, leading six warriors of Minas Tirith with shield, four with shield and spear, uh, one with shield, spear, banner, two rangers of Gondor with spear, and one knight of Minas Tirith. And then allying in from the fellowship, I have Boromir of Gondor, horse and shield, and from the White Council, Galadriel, Lady of Light. Um, also at 28 models, uh, so both 28 models, at 600 points. I got to choose 
which one I wanted to play in this one. I think both these lists can perform decently well in Lords of Battle. It kind of just depends on matchup, because in my good list, I have a lot of Warriors and Minas Tirith, D7, and a lot of, you know, mounted heroes in her in Boromir. And even Lady of Light can obviously fight, so it could do some damage, and I won't lose too many wounds there. The Moria list, I have the Watcher in the Water and the Spider Queen as my heavy hitters. And as you'll notice, I have most of my Moria Goblins with Shield. So they're mostly just playing the defensive strategy and trying to sit back and castle back, which is a little bit weird for an evil Goblin list. I'm not trying to swarm anyone, but um, that actually makes this list quite useful in Lords of Battle. And so I ended up winning the roll-off and playing my Moria list in Lords of Battle. I was playing a, a more new player. He was playing Minas Tirith. He split up his warbands in Denethor, Boromir, and Faramir. So the Watcher kind of just was able to pick them off one by one. But yeah, I think overall, both of the, these lists can perform in Lords of Battle. Uh, what do you guys think? I mean, seeing how you play very similar lists to that before, we've all seen the the Watcher in the Water, Spider Queen, Derbers thing happen before at higher points. It's say pretty useful because you've got really strong offensive heroes with the Spider Queen and the Watcher in the Water, and you've got the Bat Swarms in there, which strategically are very useful. You tend to protect the goblins and kind of keep them out of combat the best you can for a lot of the games. So, you know, you don't it's not like you're tossing them in so you actually end up with not that many models in combat at once so i think it's a pretty good way of using the list i think a lot of people would be a little bit afraid of having the goblins in there but there's not a ton of them so i don't think it's a huge liability i'd be pretty afraid to take on that list especially with the watcher being able to pick off just whatever it wants and drag it into base contact the other list is just very defensively sound. Just being able to have your troops stand there and shield or go into something that has a lower fight value. Or even if you lose the combat, having that shield wall at defense 7 makes it really useful. So both of them are pretty strong. I don't really see huge weakness in either one. Do you have an opinion of which you think would be better in Lords of Battle? Or you think they're pretty even? Yeah, I think they're pretty even. I think a, a lot of Lords of Battle sometimes comes down to the heroes that you have. Because if you have favorable heroes in combat, they do a ton of damage. So both of those lists can do it, because they've both got the heroes there. I think I would be most afraid of facing off against the Watcher, though. The Watcher and the Spider Queen, because they just can do so much between the two of them. That's not a fun matchup for your opponent. I might have to disagree with you slightly. I, actually, I might actually go with the good side as the stronger pick for this scenario. You know, you said earlier that the Defense 7 shield wall is really good on the Minas Tirith, and that kind of means that you can deny your opponent to score wounds on you. So I think that the Minas Tirith would definitely have more staying game um, than the Goblins overall. Of course, it depends on how you play them and like how you set them up and what kind of combats they're in. But I think overall, it's a little bit more survivable with the good list. The other thing is the good side has a lot more might and 
I see more potential with hero combats. If you can hero combat into a hero, then you activate the Lords of Battle rule, and then it kind of, you know, you get your might back, you do more hero combats, and uh, I think that one has more um, damage output. Yeah, the two monsters are really good, but I think that might depend on good rolls, especially like maybe the Watcher to roll enough tentacle shots or to like appear and be deployed early enough to do the damage. So I think the good side is slightly more reliable here. Yeah, I, I'm leaning that way as well. I mean, it's different in, in this case because you got to like choose, you knew what, like, what army you're going to come up against in the first round, right? Because you won the roll off and you got to pick which army you wanted to use. So in that kind of specific circumstance, I can see the point being made for evil. But going in not knowing what your enemy was going to use, I think I'd agree with Charles and go for the good army because I feel like it's like like it's defensive. It has the high defense troops, but also it has blinding light if you need it. If you come up against a big shooting army, because if you come up against a big shooting army with your your Moria list, you could be in trouble, right? If they get in range of those goblins. And get even a couple volleys off that like you're gonna be behind on kills and then it's it's kind of hard to catch up on that i mean yeah because that being said you could try and like just send your monsters in to fight stuff but then they have a lot of wounds they can give up your bat swarms can give up a lot of wounds too yeah i think i feel like this one may have been a case of richard going i really want to use my monster list <laughs> screw it i'm gonna use my monster list <laughs> Yeah. And you know what? I respect it. <laughs> yeah, I um, I don't always make the right choice. Sometimes I act emotionally as well. I, I agree with you guys. I think uh, I think my good side list is probably the better list consistently here, just because I feel like Lady Light does everything right. So it's not just to say the monster list isn't like it's not it's going to do well in Lords of Battle, but it's just it's going to be less consistent. I think. Than the, than the good one with, with the magic protection and, and high defense. It might be more situational. Like, if you look at your opponent list and they have no counters to the Watcher, and you know that, you know, assuming he comes on the board early, you can deal enough damage and you can wipe them out. And Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, agreed. Yeah, definitely. It's just more swingy. Ian, would you like to go next with your lists? Sure. Uh, I don't have them in front of me. Give me one second, I can start looking them up. But I'm pretty sure I have them off the top of my head anyway. Um, so my good list uh, was a last alliance list led by a sealed door and a sealed door in his warband. He had, he was fully kitted out. So he had the, the shield, the horse and the one ring. And in his warband, he had two Numenorean warriors with spear and shield, five Numenor warriors with bow. <laughs> I know you guys all love the Numenor warriors with bow, you know, they're near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Second warband was the uh, Numenorean captain with the horse, shield, and lance. Uh, and in his warband, he had eight Numenorean warriors with shield, and one of them had a banner. And my last warband was Aristor, and he had eight Rivendell warriors with spear and shield, three warriors with bow, and one Rivendell knight with shield. So that was 30 models, um, seven might, and then nine bows plus one throwing dagger. And part of the reason I chose to like equip the Numenorean warriors with bow was because I knew Lords of Battle was in the pack. And having extra shooting just means you get to control... Well, A, gets you a couple kills early on, so you start, you know, once combat is hit, you should be ideally up by at least a few kills, so you're up on points. And B, it also allows you to pick the engagement, which I think is really important in this game. And also knowing that it's going to be good versus evil, evil generally doesn't have as many 
shooting lists. So even though they're not great bows, they're better than no bows, and a lot of evil lists have no bows. I, I love that thought. motto, better than no bows. <laughs> it's true. I mean, what are you going to do? If, if, you, if you show up with Goblin Town and all you have is that, uh, that whip from Grinna, and your opponent has no throwing weapons or bows at all, you have the advantage. Ha-ha! <laughs> That's a lie. Don't take that advice. <laughs> um, and then my evil list was an alliance from the Serpent Horde and uh, Corsairs. So first warband was a uh, Suladan with an armored horse. He had six Harad warriors with bow, two Serpent Guard on foot, two riders with war spears. So those are just like the normal guys, the fight three guys. Uh, and then two Arch- Watchers of Karna with Blade. My second warband was Raza. He had three Harad Warriors with bow and three Serpent Guard. Third warband was a Hasherin, and he had the same thing as the as Raza. And my last warband was Dalamir, and he had four Corsairs with spear and two Corsairs with bow. This list, same kind of thing, has a lot of shooting and a lot of combat potential. Having four three-attack heroes is great especially when it's like like your opponents just never have enough answers for you, so you always have heroes in there just grinding through troops. Yeah. And then as for the Corsair picks, I'm kind of limited by my models, so that's why like I only have like the one box of Corsair dudes, so that's why I have the two guys with bow. They're fine, and I'm totally okay actually with having a few Corsairs in there that are the defense three. I didn't get to pull it off this game, but I tried it once when I had a practice game with this list against Richard, where you get, like, one Corsair in against an opponent's hero, and then you just try and throw a ton of daggers at them to kill them and try and get the enemy off his horse. Like, either way, you get success. Didn't quite work, but it's a cheeky tactic, and I love it. Right, so where are we are? Uh, Lords of Battle. That's what we're talking about. So, in my game for Lords of Battle, I won the roll-off to pick which army to use, and my opponent had a Mordor army with uh, Black Numenorean Marshal, a Ring Wraith, and Shagrat, and I think an Orc Captain as well. And then he just had a whole bunch of, like, Moran and Orcs with Spear and Black Numenoreans. So I was like, okay, no shooting. That's a big plus for me if I use my good army. And opposite to that, he had his Rohan army, which was uh, the Riders of Thaedon one. So low model count, lots of heroes. And I was just thinking... It's not a great matchup for me, like what I mentioned earlier, just because I have a lot of low defense troops in my evil army, and he has a lot of heroes, and he's going to do a ton of hurl combats first turn, no matter what, unless I get heroes into all of his guys. So I'm probably just going to go down too quickly for me to counter him. So I chose to have my good army fight his evil army. And we just kind of went from there. It wasn't too bad. I got to pull him in with my bows. Isildur, like, worst man in my tournament, lost all his might on the first turn. And didn't kill uh, Shagrat, even though he real combat in him, lost the fight, and uh, took a wound. Yeah, it was great. Wait, wait, that that was the battle report? <laughs> Do you want more of the battle report? Okay. Oh, well, uh, like, I'm just wondering what happened, or just, like, Isildur, <laughs> he flopped oh, against Shagrat. Dude, it was, it was so annoying. Like, he heroic combats in the first round of combat, and I'm like, okay, I know it's been a while since he's played, my opponent's played the game, so I'm like, okay, I'm doing this. Shagrat is open to be charged. Do you want to, like, strike to stop me? And he's like, nah, what's life without a little bit of risk? Perfect. I agree. Let's do it. Heroic combat. Isildur fails to kill one of his guys, has to spend a second point of might, gets into Shagrat, 
and rolls a four highest. Shagrat rolls a five, and we just sit there, and I'm like, well, I guess I have to spend a point of might, because you're going to spend the might anyway. So Shagrat wins the fight, but he's down to one might. And then he does one wound to a sealed door, and I'm like, awesome, awesome. That didn't go at all how I was expecting. I was hoping to get at least, like, a leader wound, maybe a kill there. And no, a sealed door is just, you know, sitting back there, less fate, out of might. Interesting. And then our lions just kind of clashed. I got a few kills. You did win the game, though, right? I did end up winning the game, but it was like, (sighs) Sealdor let me down so much. So did Aristor. All my heroes, like, didn't do anything for me in that game. I think Aristor won three or four fights against guys in a row, and he didn't get any kills, even with his rerolls to wound. He just couldn't couldn't do anything. Sealdor put on the ring after that. His horse died. He put on the ring, charged into Shagrat, won one round of fighting, did, like, a wound. Next turn, failed the ring roll and ran away. And he didn't do anything for the rest of the game. <laughs> and it was it was just my, like, front line of uh, uh, Numenorian warriors backed up by the Rivendell that managed to get me the kills. It was just the troops doing doing all the work. So what you're saying is your Numenorian <laughs> bowmen carried you to the victory. Got it. They actually, like, they helped. They definitely helped. They got a few kills and got me that early lead. Great success. But it actually did, because he had the numbers advantage on me. So I managed to pull him in between two pieces of terrain, basically. So even though I had a shorter frontage, I was able to contain his numbers because of that. And because of the bows, great success. Well, I just think it's the most Ian thing to take Corsairs with bows. Like, I know he can argue that he's limited his collection, but that's just something that shouldn't be in anyone's collection. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If it makes a difference, I I think I took half of the Corsair bows that were, like, going to be really hard to convert. And I was like, okay, these guys can just be bowmen if I want to randomly throw them in. And then the rest of them, I think I converted into Reavers. This is probably the first time ever seen Corsairs with bows in any list. <laughs> I'm going to dock you, Martian, for two things. First of all... You were aware about five days ago that we were going to talk about our toss lists, and you didn't have them in front of you when we started the episode. Okay, so that's that's minus one. Minus two is you just admitted to us that you converted some of your Corsairs with bows into Corsairs that didn't have bows, and you still put the ones with the bows in your list. You had the option not to, and you still did it. Clearly, you're not understanding the lesson plan, and I'm going to have to speak to you after class. Um, (laughs) aside from that I completely agree that having all of those three attack heroes in your evil list is pretty mean I sent all the guys the transcript of one of our warm up games where I was like that's a Hashrin right and you were like yeah and then you just killed a bunch of dwarves and I'm like well this is terrifying and I don't like it no because that's that's really useful in again in Lords of Battle, having heroes that can do that kind of offensive output, especially on your evil side, where your troops are usually weaker and you have more of them. In terms of your actual game with your Numenor and High Elves, I think that's always a really good army to have in Lords of Battle, just because you have that uh, strength four in the front rank and you're backed up by fight five with the potential to use... uh, your Elven Blade if they get into direct combat, which really makes it a lot harder for your opponent to score wounds against you when you've got the fight value advantage and the roll-off modifier. 
So that's useful. But I think your situation with a sealed door kind of highlights that, yes, this is a dice game. Yes, sometimes even when you have such a massive name hero like a sealed door, he's still going to fall flat on his face from time to time. However, I would pick your good list probably every time to go into that scenario just because you have those two big mounted heroes aerostore is no slouch and you've got the capability of the troops to back it up but yeah isildur failing to uh having to spend all his might points to survive shagrat that's a me thing how did that happen to you so uh, that's supposed to happen to me not to you what what happened? I know, you're, I know you're saying this happens like every once in a while. Just as a follow-up, I know we're not going to talk about the rest of the tournament in this episode, but he did the same thing in both of my games against Charles and Richard as well later on in the tournament. <laughs> like, he didn't do, like, anything. The whole tournament. I used about a three of the four games, and he let me down in every single one. And that's why so, Zildor is a meme. It's because yeah. you didn't listen to episode 17 before you went to the, or episode 18 of Into the West <laughs> for uh, building your list. <laughs> I was just so caught up. I was like, I can bring Numenorians with bows. Yes. So I guess uh, I agree with Alex. I, I think if by far your good list um, in Lords of Battle, you know, it's, you know, it has the, all the natural advantages of, of most good lists in this scenario. I personally am not a huge fan of your evil list, having played it. It's still, like, good because it has, like, really strong and underappointed heroes like Suleran and Dalamir. And, of course, like, the Serpent Horde and Corsairs are just really good troops. But I think that it would be better to drop either Raza or the Hasharin because, well, first of all, Raza is crap. And Hasharan is probably really a little less crap. <laughs> but I just think that, like, it's it's like a D4, mostly D4 army, and, and you're not utilizing your numbers, whereas if you drop one of those less important heroes to the strategy, and they're both on foot too, so I think you can afford losing one of them, and you fill out your warbands, and then go to, like, 40 plus models in 600 points would be much more scary and even in lords of battle too i know hordes are generally not advantageous but i've seen corsairs and and serpent horde do well just because all they're shooting i pretty much my opinion is pretty close to what richard just said i think if you made a couple tweaks to your evil i would pick your evil because it's so hard hitting right you have a couple models with you know bane of kings and then you have backstabbers in there you know but I think in this case, just based on the model count, I, I still have to go with good. And based on your how you roll with the Zildor, I still have to go with good. It's just, you're going to be winning more fights. So I think your army will take longer to break. And even though I don't think Aerostore and the Knight Captain, neither of them are like super reliable combat heroes, I still think that it'll take more to break that army and you'll have more time to get the kills in. The, another point Richard pointed out was that... Um, a horde army is not necessarily bad in Lords of Battle. And, you know, speaking of that, my good army is another example of that, which is uh, Army of Lake Town and Thorns Company. So the list is 67 models. I basically took close to uh, the maximum numbers I could. So leader is Master of Lake Town, and he has a full warband of Lake Town Guard with assorted gear. Alfred also with a full warband of Lake Town Guard. 
I have Braga with a full warband of Lake Town Guard. And then uh, two captains of Lake Town with 11 in each warband. And then I had just about 55 points left. I allied in Nori from Thorne's company. And so that comes to 67 models and 11 might and 21 bows. So this one, I actually think, in my opinion, it's... I'll go over my evil in just a second, but I actually think this one is really strong in Lords of Battle because my experience with playing it at the event was that my opponent usually could not kill models quick enough, especially given the an hour and 30 minute time limit. And usually with the amount of bows I have and the amount of numbers I have, I will be able to break my opponent and potentially put a wound on the leader. I feel like going by the VP count in the scenario, uh, as long as your opponent doesn't exceed double the kills of you, and only scores three VPs for that first objective, it's pretty comfortable for you to get a minor win in that situation. That's kind of what you have to look out for when you play this list. And then the second list I brought is the Assault Upon Helm's Deep Legendary Legion. So I had um, the Urukai Captain with Shield, and he has five Urukai with Shield in his Warband, three with Pike, one Berserker, one with Banner, a Bomb Team with an extra Brand, and five crossbows, and a second warband uh, led by a, a captain with shield, five Urukai with shield, one berserker, two pikemen, and five crossbows, and then a ballista. Um, this one is 36 models and had 10 crossbows. This one is more reliant on the shooting, and the bomb is actually... I don't know how I feel about this one in Lords of Battle, because from the FAQ, one of the FAQs, all your casualties from the bomb of your own models count towards your opponent's tally. It's very dangerous. That could be in your opponent's favor even, you know, if it doesn't go your way. Uh, but that aside, I think it's pretty solid just based on the shooting. You know, what Ian said, um, good shooting is most of the time good in this scenario. I ended up playing against uh, Return of the King Legendary Legion in, in this first game, and shooting didn't do too much because uh, Warriors of the Dead, as everyone knows, is hard to kill with shooting. But I did get a couple fate points off of the King of the Dead and Aragorn with the Ballista early game. So that gave me a few wounds head start. Like I mentioned earlier with the risk with the bomb, the bomb, when it blew up, it only dealt one wound to the surrounding blast area. And it was such a shame because both King of the Dead and Strider were within range. So my idea was to knock them both out and just end the game right there. And I rolled a one on the on the number of wounds. And so not only did they both survive, but it killed about six or seven of my Urks. And the game ended very close, even though it was a major for me. I only outscored one wound to my opponent. So it was too close for comfort. And that is just a bomb at its worst performance, how it can work against you in this scenario. But other than that, I really like the rest of this list. And I think it's pretty decent in Lords of Battle. But personally, I think my first list is probably stronger. What do you guys think? I'd say your first list is definitely stronger. And the reason I'd say that is because, one, it doesn't have the potential to uh, explode suddenly and deal you wounds instead of dealing your opponent wounds, which is, uh, honestly, I had my mic off and I was laughing hysterically while you're describing to me what would happen when the uh, detonation team goes off there. I'd forget about it. I'd be like, all right, drop the big metal thing. Let's just go run into combat because you're automatically starting at like a wounds deficit. 
um, but also because in a later scenario, I played against your Lake Town army, and I don't care if they're only fight three base and like defense five or whatever. There were 67 of them, and you outnumbered my Mordor army one and a half to one. I had 44 models and you had 67. They're defense four, by the way, so you def- should be wounding me on fours with your Brandon orcs. Yeah, but I don't, I don't have a lot of those. I only had like a handful of those. The rest of my orcs were like, they just looked across the board and they were like, wow. So this is what it feels like to be dramatically outnumbered. Okay, uh, I, I don't know what to do with the situation. So, yeah, I think your your good army is probably better suited just because you have a dramatic advantage there especially with the heroes that you bring you know the the tools that you'd normally use in that isengard legendary legion i feel like they don't exactly help you a ton in this scenario the ballista can absolutely do a ton of damage but if it doesn't work out for you then you can be pretty stuck of course the matchup didn't help you uh, to come up against army of the dead in that scenario especially with Urukai, it's just you know it's one of those unlucky situations yeah initially i was thinking that the uh the the assault on hell's deep legion would be better in this scenario just because like like we're talking about with shooting like you have the ballista in there and like what a, a dozen crossbows i think something like that 10 of them 10 but that's that's so much firepower and that you would expect normally that'd be enough to get you the uh, the advantage in the early game, and you could just carry that through. But that being said, like I didn't realize the bomb worked like that in this scenario, and that you, I'm assuming it's pretty rare that you actually end up only blowing up the guy detonating the bomb on your side. You usually probably get like two or three more guys of your own anyway. So unless yeah, unless you're taking out one of the big enemy heroes, you're probably not actually getting that many more kills or wounds done. And then the other thing that I'm thinking of is, too, is, is is you have three heroes in that list, but all of them are just, like, there's two captains and then the, the siege veteran. So you don't have a lot of might to control the game once combat is joined. And you also have three fairly weak heroes that could get killed and then give your opponent more might, right? According to that, that scenario special rule. So, yeah. Yeah. You might be the better call to go with the Lake Town, I think. Also in the Lake Towns bonus, you have, what, 21 bows in that? <laughs> so it's not like that one's shy on shooting either. Also, final point, Charles, I'm so sorry about your bomb. I can't believe that happened twice in one tournament. That's insane. I, I don't know. I've played with the bomb a couple times. Um, I like the bomb. And I think in Lords of Battle, yes, there's the downsides of, you know, losing certain wound counts, but... I don't think that's all there is to the scenario. I think obviously rolling the one sucks, but you know, like as Ian said, his Isildur rolled ones, so you know we can't really say he's a useless hero. Basically, I think that like what you can do with the bomb is you can take out a chunk of like the enemy flank or make a hole in their line, and I think even if you break even or even you're down a couple wounds for the wound count I think is okay if you can get more value in the the troops that 
or models that you're killing, which may even include, you know, an enemy captain that, you know, they might be more careful with their bigger heroes. So you throw in, you know, killing like maybe five warriors on each side, but you're also taking out one of their captains. And suddenly, you know, points wise, you are coming out on top. And then also, it is also something that if you hold behind your lines, they are afraid of throwing in their big heroes especially their leader you know that's something that you can steal vps with like instantly so even if you roll like a one or two that is instant wounds so that's that's pretty valuable you know something that a lot of things can't get you so even if you're you're not technically winning the um the wound tally you know there's still ways to to come out on top with that I think I would be careful with the Lake Town and Lords of Battle is because in this tournament with good versus evil, I think you're a bit more safe. But I think if you come against a list with Blinding Light, which is quite common in competitive good lists, then I think you will have some trouble because if you're outshot and the enemy army has same or higher fight value, they can just hold a choke against you and yeah you'll you'll never get enough tallies and and with the heroes that you're running like they're small and not very strong in combat so you won't really be able to take out the enemy leader easily so um it's going to be hard for you to score points so i i still think i lean towards the uh the helms the legendary legion yeah i i agree with you about that point about the bomb though i think yeah, yeah. It's kind of you want to keep it back for the threat. The threat is big, and then maybe like he was saying, just move it to a flank where the enemy doesn't have might, and then you just wait for an opportunity for them. To, for once you're allowed to move first, just send in like two guys to tag everybody, toss the bomb on, and then boom, blow it up and kill like six ghosts, seven ghosts. I do agree with that because like there are certain heroes that this legion just has no other counters against. Like, for example, how else am I going to kill Strider? If I don't take him out with a Ballista, he's going to be up close, and late game, he might kill six or seven Rurkai. It's better to get him out of the way, even if I'm not making a fair trade, right? Because if I can't get rid of him, it might just lose a game for me. Can I just add on that everyone says my lists are always so filthy because, you know, they're convenient alliances, but I think looking at Charles's list, he has the dirtiest list here. I don't care if they're legendary legions, you know, or green. It's just disgusting. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I'd call this one a tie. You have to define what filth means. Some people are like, oh, yellow and red are, are filth, you know. It doesn't matter what's in it. It's, it's a fine line between, like, filth and, like, highly, highly optimized, right? If you think that the old Rangers of Thillium, before they got their nerf, is filthy, then... I guess anything can be filthy, right? Because that's that was a legendary legion. Yeah, it's it's kind of it, it's kind of like how how you define filthy, right? It's like, do you define it as just being like disgustingly good and highly optimized? Or do you just define it as being like, oh, I'm gonna ally this and then this and then this and then this and make something horrendous? Do you feel like you need to take a shower before and after the tournament? <laughs> <laughs> During. <laughs> okay. Alexander, do you want to go over your lists? So uh, my first list uh, was a pure Mordor list, 600 points. It was Witch King of Angmar, 3 Might, 14 Will, 2 Fate, the Crown of Morgul, and a Horse. Five Orc Warriors with Shield, 
four with spear, three Moranin orcs with shield, one with shield, spear, and banner, two with shield and spear, and two warg riders with shield. Second warband was the mouth of Sauron on an armored horse, four orc warriors with shield, three with spear, two Moranin orcs with shield, two with shield and spear, and Kardish the Firecaller, three orc warriors with shield, three with spear, and six orc trackers. 44 total, a 23 to break, six might points. Now, I won the roll off in our round for Lords of Battle. I did not pick this list for obvious reasons. My opponent had, I guess, is it Azog's Legion with the Gundabad orcs and a couple of ogres, an Azog and a captain. And I had this, and he had that, or he had, I think it was Return of the King, Legendary Legion, with, or no, no, maybe it was just Army of the Dead. Either way, it was Ghosts. And I was like, well, let's see, do I want to play my high model count bunch of orcs that are low courage against a bunch of terrifying ghosts, or do I want to fight against his Azog's Legion with my second list, which was Kazadoom, it was Balin, Six Dwarf Warriors with Shield, one Dwarf Warrior with no additional war gear, three Dwarf Rangers with Longbow and Throwing Axes, three Kazid Guard, King's Champion with four Dwarf Warriors with Shield, two Dwarf Rangers with Longbow and Throwing Axes, two Kazid Guard, and Floy Stonehand, three Dwarf Warriors with Shield, three Dwarf Rangers with Longbow and Throwing Axes, and three Kazid Guard. I, of course, uh, picked to fight against his Azog's Legion. Sorry, he did not have Azog. He had Bolg. Keep making that mistake. He had Bolg, not Azog. I picked this, of course, because I had more offensive heroes. I had a much higher defense to his offense. So I was able to essentially put him in a, at a choke point and let my two big combat heroes do the work. Uh, Foy was able to take away Bolg's uh, Burly special rule a few times, which really slowed him down. And that's all I really needed my warriors to do was have Foy do that and then plug one in and just minimize what he could do while Balin and the King's Champion went out and just took the field offensively. I had my Dwarf Warriors frequently shielding, my Khazad Guard fighting normally, getting off some heroic combats with my dwarves that I could get in there so that they could all bounce off and go into other combats. Uh, that worked really well for me because putting those two together with, of course, the offensive ability of the Khazad Guard was able to overpower his ogres and his Volg, which who is an offensive dynamo, but at the same time, when I put those two against it, I was able to outpace him. I also have, of course, the bows, and he had no bows, so I was able to get a little bit of a head start there. Just a bit, but enough that I was able to stay ahead for the rest of the game. Uh, I didn't double him. Bolg still does well. You can't really slow him down that much, and I was not about to throw one of my big heroes into him. Ogres, of course, are only defense 5, meaning those were 6 available wounds if I was able to get rid of both of them. As opposed to the option of having my whole bunch of orcs against ghosts, I think the choice was clear for me. 
I wouldn't mind my Mordor list in that situation because I have three spellcasters, but it would take a lot for me to win uh, Lords of Battle with that list just because I would really have to push to get out ahead early with the Witch King and the Mouth of Sauron and hope to shield wherever possible and outnumber wherever possible with the orcs because they would start going down usually faster than my opponent especially in the case of ghosts thoughts wait just a question for you guys uh does can floyd turn off master of battle um since that's an army bonus the army bonus not Uh, well because the army bonus says it gives that profile the special rule right Okay. So then, so then it becomes a special rule as part of the profile, rather than because it's not an army-wide bonus; it's specific to the leader. Yeah, because that that jumped out to me. Like I think most of the time I would probably want to turn that off, preferably to Burley on bulk. But yeah, I I don't know. I think this is a tough one for me. I don't think your Mordor would have been a terrible matchup against army of the dead did you have any black numenorians no not in this list okay i i guess that's that's probably the main thing because if you had a couple i think i would choose your mordor just because you do have kardish which enables you fearless and i think just being able to swarm army of the dead with higher fight it doesn't matter what like what you're really going up against because like from my experience if you're outnumbered that much like you're gonna win the fights and you're gonna be able to kill more than he kills you. So mm. and then, you know, Strider, you have multiple transfixes. Just keep them transfixed the whole game. There's not much you can do, so I would like your odds there. No, I, I don't mind it. I just I see it as a situation where I mean that specific matchup wouldn't have been that bad, but there are a lot of matchups where I find in Lords of Battle with a list like it's certainly not impossible. And it's quite doable, but it's it, I always find it an uphill battle. You've got to get in early, get out to an early lead, kind of push your opponent to come out offensively. Uh, otherwise, fighting from behind with that army can be difficult. I think Mordor overall is probably weaker than the Dwarf list at Lords of Battle. But I agree with Richard in this situation. Against the Army of the Dead, Mordor might have not been a terrible choice. You didn't have the Black Numenorians, but you still have the Furies. So. And, and I just think um, once you keep those threats pinned down, the Witch King can just, you know, he can just eat up three or four models a turn, depending on his hero combats and stuff. But yeah, so I, I would probably say, yes, Dwarves are better, but your Mordor might have been decent in this matchup as well. I kind of just echo the same thoughts, like... I see where you're going with the choice that you made because the dwarves means like you're more defensive, so you're not going to give up as many VPs. And also, it sounds like his evil army had more VPs to give up. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you're going to give up less and there's potential for you to get more. So I see where your thought process was. But I, I kind of agree if, if with the mortar choice. Like, I don't think you're not you're not quaking in your boots. You're not super afraid. And I don't know. Did you have a few like some fight four troops in your mortar list or it was it was mm-hmm. mostly just. Not in this one. I have had a lot of armies before where I do smatter in like three or four or five Black Numenorians. I went yeah. with a variety of orcs. And I, that did pay off for me. Like, I, I'm happy things went your way, but I think what I'd be afraid of in your shoes 
is it comes to a point where it's Bolg versus one of your main two heroes, and he has one one higher fight value. Not a huge thing, but you know if it comes to a strike off and you lose the strike off, Bolg is most likely killing one of your main heroes and regenerating might back. And I think if that happened, then it would be an uphill battle for you, regardless of how tough your troops are. Oh yeah, no, I was insulating Ball and King's Champion from being close to Bolg pretty much the entire game. I was like, all right, how do I get two layers of troops between Bolg and him? It was like a sandwich where my hero was the far layer of bread. I was like, you just go over, be over, be over there. Just go fight some Gundabad orcs and, and forget about this guy over here. I managed to shut down his burly for a few turns. My thought process behind that was if I get the charge off and get to charge Bolg with one dwarf, I'm going to shut down his burly just because if I roll a six, I'm going to at least force him to spend a might point. I'm going to drain his resources. And it worked out well enough. You can kind of control Bolg to a degree with your dwarves because you have the priority rerolls from Balin, right? If you lose the, the the priority, you can just try and re-roll it, and then f- like to, the idea is to force Bold to be spending the might, so his master of battle isn't worth as much. And then also you have Flowey to shut him down a little bit. You can get Will back from killing the ogres, right? Yeah, there were a couple scenarios uh, in that tournament last week where I had Floyd get a will point back because of his special rule, which then I was like, huh, now I'm shutting down that again. My opponent was just like muttering under his breath how unhappy he was because. Floyd was taking away all of his enjoyment. But Richard knows about that. Yeah, Floyd does that. Looks like Santa, but definitely isn't. This Santa only takes things away. <laughs> so Floyd is Krampus. That's what I'm hearing. If you guys have ever seen, uh, what movie is that? Insidious? Insidious 3 or whatever it is? Yeah. No, that's just Krampus. Dude, never dude mind. there's a movie called Krampus. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, it's just Never mind. It was, actually the, it was actually called Krampus. Never mind. Okay, let's move on to our open topic, which we'll be discussing uh, randomized uh, scenario packs versus pre-selected event packs. Okay, so in our open topic today, we'll be discussing and comparing events that have randomized scenarios and pre-selected scenarios. So... As we talked about earlier, we recently had an event that was made up of pre-selected scenarios. And just based on our discussion surrounding Lords of Battle and kind of the reasons why we picked our lists for that scenario and things like that, we'll kind of go over our decisions and our reasons for how we might build our lists based on um, knowing an, an event pack. So just to start with like general comparisons, do you guys have a preference of randomized versus pre-selected or you kind of see them as kind of different and enjoy them both? I've only, I think I've only played in, in one tournament, maybe two that were randomized. Uh, the rest were pre-selected. Either way, my list building mentality remains largely the same. I like to strike a, a solid balance just because with uh, pre-selected, you're usually finding that the organizers are going to pick from all the different pools and try and get the objectives of the games to be varied. You might have a maelstrom in there somewhere. You might have 
something like a Lords of Bowery to the death, you'd have a, a domination or a capture and control. You might need to have an army that is capable of doing a variety of different things and the potential to win in various different situations. With randomly selected scenario tournament packs, you can, of course, build a list with a very specific strength and just cross your fingers and hope that that you get scenarios drawn that fit that strength. But at the same time, the scenarios, the 16 that we have, are quite varied, and there's like four, I think there's four different general pools of what those objectives are in a game. Uh, so the odds of getting a, a variety are pretty good. So again, I like to go for the balance. There are actually 18, but... Oh, you're right. No, 18. Yeah. I said 16, didn't yeah. I? There are 18. There used to be 12. They had another six. There's yeah. 18. I, I still think generally a balance is always a solid way of building a list because that's what you're going to find. But the way you're describing is you're kind of saying in your own way that a pre-selected event is about the same as a randomized event. But I don't think that's the case because organizers don't always pick a balance pack. Like, for example, we went down to Portland a few years ago, and that event, all five games seem to be really movement-focused. And I felt like if you didn't have a solid amount of mountain models or heroic march, you were immediately just disadvantaged. So I actually don't think that all packs are balanced. I actually think that it really depends on the, the TO and what their style is, what kind of event they want it to be. But I would say my preference is randomized. I respect people who build really strong lists, and I understand the enjoyment and the strategy behind building lists. But for me, it's all about kind of uh, playing around anything that comes your way and kind of both me and my opponent not knowing what's next. I like the idea of that, and I think that's like a pure test of skill that I enjoy about the game. And that's why it slightly edges over a pre-selected scenario pack for me, but I do enjoy both, just randomize a little more. Hmm. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I I see what you're saying, Charles, about the enjoyment of a randomized scenario. I think you get that thrill when the scenarios are announced. But I don't know if, to me, that it adds an extra layer of skill. I think it's a different kind of skill. It's the skill of, you know, thinking on your feet more quickly, I guess. But I think where... The skill of a pre-selected scenario format is that you have to do a deep dive analysis and a lot more preparation. So I think I personally like being prepared and I think players should be rewarded. But it's not just like uh, being able to play more games or practice more often before. But I think also, you know, finding areas where you can gain an advantage. Like, for instance, for the recent Toss Your Cabers, we had Lords of Battle as the first game. And as Charles alluded to earlier, a lot of times Lords of Battle is later on in the pack. And there's a reason for that, because it's to stop, you know, it's a scenario that is generally not favorable against hordes and really strong armies such as goblin town and and those are the kind of armies that are dominating the meta right now and i think if lords of battle is first like it was at tuic what you can think of like some things that less experienced players would not think about is the first game of a tournament is generally more random depending on how the uh, tournament organizer selects it 
but a lot of the times you're just playing, you know, a random opponent rather than a Swiss ranked one. So going by that logic, if you're winning your games, you should be playing harder and harder opponents. So if you're trying to win or podium in a tournament, the first few games are your easiest games. And and knowing that you could probably get away with bringing a horde army to a tournament like this because you won't get punished with Lords of Battle as much. Because if Lords of Battle is like the third or fourth scenario, then you might not consider uh, a horde list. So that kind of thinking to me is another type of skill you know bring an edge to the tournament um i think i would prefer the pre-selected pack versus the random scenario i kind of like both i think it kind of depends on on other factors in the tournament like like with with toss the thing is is we're we're running on like very strict time limits right like an hour and a half and the points limit is kind of big so Part of the reason we wanted to have pre-selected ones is because we knew we would pick ones that aren't going to take a long time. Like if you're playing 600 points with an hour and a half time limit and you have to play freaking seize, what's it, capture the camp, what's it called? Uh, Storm the camp. Like you're going to get two, three rounds of combat max. And that game's going to like, people aren't going to get into other people's camps. It's going to be a really low scoring game. So we were trying to avoid that kind of a thing. So other factors like that play into it as well. As for like randomly picking, I don't know. It I think there's it's worth a discussion as well. That just to think is like, is it gonna be like randomly picked where it's like, okay, we have all the 18 scenarios that can come up. Once one of them comes up, it's gone. Or is it gonna be like using the pool system that's in the scenario booklet, where it's like once one pool a scenario from a pool comes up, then that pool is gone. So you don't have the chance of playing like a domination and then a capture of control and then like a whole bunch of ones objective ones all in one tournament. So if you have six games, you can play three objective ones. Or is it once where it's like you're playing the pool system, so you play one objective one and then the pool system is gone and then you don't have to worry about that anymore. You can focus down on the other pools. That kind of affects army list building too. So there's like preset and randomized and then randomized kind of has its two subsections of how you're going to be randomizing games as well. The randomized within the randomized. It's an interesting way of doing things. Like I said, my army building doesn't change, um, but balance is always a solid way of building a list. I think Definitely. I think if that's if that's the case, then if you're always going to bring a balanced list, I think you should prefer the random scenarios because I think if it's a pre-selected pack, there are going to be players who optimize according to the the pack, which will put you at a disadvantage. If you're the type to always just go for a balanced list, which is fine, but I think when it comes to the top players and what they're doing at the top tables, like everyone is trying to look for that small advantage, and I think they're going to edge you out because they're they're going to build their list uh, based on the pack. I think if you go by Ian's uh, what Ian mentioned of uh, selecting from a pool, then it's not as randomized, right? Because you're going to guarantee there's going to be a maelstrom, for example you're going to guarantee there's going to be a killy one. Then I think the more games that tournament has, then the closer it is to like a balanced scenario, then then the more favorable it will be to a balanced list. Like if it was like a six game Nova tournament and they did one from each pool, then it's it's pretty much guaranteed to be a balanced pack. If it was a three game tournament, then you know, that's a completely different story. But the introduction of the pool system kind of controls the randomization a little bit. Just it's not as crazy. 
it, it goes from winning the lottery to winning your local bingo night on a scale of the RNG. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. It, like, that's a good point. It does make it less random to a certain extent, right? Yeah. But I, I, I think I prefer a nice mix of both, honestly. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want it to swing one way where everybody's doing randomized ones and there's no pre-selected ones, but I wouldn't want it the other way either, right? Like, you want each event to be different. You don't want them to be all to end up with a certain, like, the same kind of format. We're saying it brings different aspects forth of, in, into list building as well. Yeah. And I guess it comes down to, like, your play style, too, because I don't know if you guys remember, but when we had Rainier on, on in episode 10, I mentioned in the open topic that even for, like, a randomized scenario where some players might just bring a balanced list. Um, sometimes I still don't go for a balanced list. Um, I might do like a really objective focused one or movement focused one, bring that to a tournament and just kind of surprise people when those scenarios come up. Normally I'm not someone who likes a super well-rounded list, but it's down to like players play style too. I think I, I don't, I don't think it's entirely just randomized. You build a certain way and pre-selected you build it a certain way. Just a minor well, correction. Rainier is episode 15. Sorry, episode help. 15, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, you're kind of like gambling too then, right? Like if you go down a specific route and you're playing randomized scenarios, like that's kind of fun too. Like you're adding in an aspect like, okay, am I going to come up against a list that, that like I'm not favored against? Okay, then how do I circumvent this? Or am I going to come up against a list where I'm heavily favored and then boom, I have an easier game? So that kind of adds a nice like element if you want to play that way too. So that that's another thing like I kind of like obviously I like making balanced lists. I think we everybody knows that at this point. But like I see the appeal of showing up with something like up to a tournament, not quite knowing and kind of going, okay, you know, I'll, I'm going to gamble and see if I if I come out lucky in this one or not. I think random scenario might might help a little bit if you come up against um, you know a player who you know, might be more skilled than you. I think the random matchup, in a way, that always gives you a, a fighting chance. Because especially with, like, uh, you know, certain Maelstrom ones, you know, Ian's favorite scenario in the heirlooms. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's anyone's game. So in, in that way. Only reason I started becoming more comfortable with randomized scenario packs is because now I know that Heirlooms can only come up one out of 18 shines instead of one out of like 12 where it was before. <laughs> I, I mean, unless they do the pool system and they pick that pool. <laughs> then it's 33%. And then I, that's why I don't like the pool system. <laughs> I recently heard that in the States they had an event where it was an all day of just to the death, like through the death three or four times. Uh, maybe I should do one with heirlooms three or four times. I would like to say I will not be attending this event. <laughs> I'm going to come up, I don't know, what's what's the most ridiculous army that I own? Um, I'm just going to show up with an army of Hasherin. That's what I'm going to show up to with that day and see what happens. <laughs> I was going to say Corsairs with maximum bow limit. Just to use our recent event, Tasha Cabers, as an example, just kind of curious what you guys did uh, when it comes to list building, since we knew ahead of time what the missions were. So just to go over... The first scenario was Lords of Battle. Second scenario was Retrieval. The third scenario was Fog of War. And the last scenario was Divide and Conquer. So let's have Ian start this time. Ian, how did you write your list around these four scenarios? And what was like kind of your thought process? 
Right. So basically, starting off with Lords of Battle, right, I wanted to be able to play my game, which obviously, like, I enjoy having shooting in there, pulling the enemy in, getting up on kills, like we talked about earlier. So that was kind of a factor with that selection. So, yeah, my Harad army had a whole bunch of shooting, and then I maximized the shooting and the, like, the ability of my good army to be able to do that. Same thing with, like, combat potential. Knowing that the time limit in all of for all of the games was only an hour and a half and we're playing like a kind of larger scale points value for that time limit i knew i wanted to have armies that could kill relatively quickly so the emphasis on heroes that could kill in combat was a big thing for me because i wanted to be able to at least try and get points for breaking the opponent right or being able to like affect breakthroughs through the opponent so i could go after their hero or other important things to try and go through for uh like objectives and like retrieval and stuff. That's kind of where my head was at. The other thing is, is I just really wanted to use a seal door and he let me down. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be a while before I break him out again. I'm not over it. The seal door goes back in the case for another six months. <laughs> Raza okay. on the other hand. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, uh, the decisions... The reasons behind why I formatted my good army the way I did is because I only own dwarves. Dwarves, 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 killing power, one heroic march, two strikes. That was it. Well, I mean, to, to actually be serious, you know, I have a couple really strong combat heroes, which helped me a lot in Lords of Battle, helped me a lot in any situation where I come up against troops or fighting towards an objective. I have the one march automatically in Balin, which is just helpful. By default, two heroic strikes, because I'm always going to have King's Champion. So there's those two there, which again help me uh, not only in scenarios where I'm trying to get through my opponent's troops, but also just trying to reposition. Like in my game in Fog of War, late game, I had the objective that I had selected was off in the back center of the board from my perspective. And I had Ball and the King's Champion quite close together, just kind of helping each other out. And I was able to get Ballin on the outside closer to my objective and heroic combat his way out towards the objective. So being able to, to have that option where I had multiple big combat heroes there was quite useful. Of course, the Dwarf Rangers, as I've already mentioned, because you really need those 24-inch bows, I think, as a, as a dwarf list with your lack of mobility. Fog of War, it helped me a lot. With my evil list, which I only ended up using once out of the four games, I wanted to maximize my use of the army bonus, which is a lot to do with orcs. Maximize the orcs, maximize the orcs that I could have the weakest ones closest to Kardish, have a smattering of bows in there because as Mordor, I think you just need a small handful just to be able to take pot shots at things. Uh, sneaky uh, shooting into combat to mess with your opponent's game plan. Obviously, having the Witch King, Kardish, and the Mouth of Sauron was really useful. This was a list inspired by Richard because he's done pretty much the same thing with the whole two, three spellcasters situation. And that helps just across the board. That was one where I look at the scenarios and go, I go, there's no way this doesn't help me. So there's a number of ways that I just I look at the scenario and go, 
you know, these characters can help me in all of these scenarios. The way that I best build a Mordor list, and I'm going to go with it. So I was going to take a ton of orcs and try and outnumber my opponent in every every situation. It's just looking at, at the scenario and, and what the end goal is. For me, it's always just play the objective. I think um, the only thing I want to add is one of the things I considered was just um, adding enough movement. Because aside from Lords of Battle, which again is the first game, which you know should be fairly straightforward, and luckily I wasn't matched up against a super strong player or, or super experienced player. And, and, and my two lists could handle Lords of Battle as well, but they weren't really built for it. But I think in the other ones like Retrieval, you do require to move to kind of essentially capture the flag. Fog of War, there's objectives all around, so you're constantly trying to vie for positioning. Um, and it's not just as simple as marching a battle line to battle line. And then in the last one, of course, you're dividing your army in two and you have to run towards the middle, right? So you don't really want an army that is totally... Um, you know, useless if it's split up. So, like, I try not to build, like, a death ball kind of list, you know, armies that can function while split up and they can move. So, you know, Boromir with his six might of heroic march, because I took him from the fellowship list, and, you know, everyone knows the spider queen puking up the, the little spiders. It can just cross the board immediately. So, yeah, so I, I just felt those those would, would be uh, pretty key so I'm I'm curious about just on the point of divide and conquer. Did that make you guys knowing that that scenario was in there, and that's one where no matter what you do, your army is split up. It's not like the other random uh, scenarios where you start randomly on board. I just you can't have the potential to have your army entirely together. In this one, you have to separate your army. Did that affect the way you guys built your lists at all? I think um, it makes it even more important, more advantageous to have like a mobile one drop. So whether that's like the Spider Queen or, you know, like Boromir mounted allows you to keep the majority of your forces together on the other side. And you're not really, you know, leaving out a valuable warband uh, vulnerable on the other. Because that, that was kind of part of part of my thinking with um, my warband structure, at least in my good list, is like I... I knew I wanted to keep the majority of my army together to be able to try and get that towards the middle. And then knowing that I have the structure, so I want the captain to be with one of my major warbands, ideally with the elves, because that's where all my spear support is, right? So in that case, I was really comfortable putting a sealed door off by himself in the one corner with the bowman, because it's like, he's my leader, so there's an incentive for the enemy to come after him. But if they come after him, I'm going to be plinking shots at them. And then they're also not going to be running towards the objectives. And Isildur is mounted, so he could just ride circles yeah. around people. So I, yeah. I like that. Yeah, the tricky thing about Divide and Conquer is you don't want like an imbalance of power between your warbands. Because you have to alternate between the corners, and you don't want one side to be super uneven. I had multiple heroic marches, just so they can kind of get to the center at around the same time. So. You don't have one army arriving first and then gets slaughtered and then your second army arrives, right? And the other thing was I kind of took a gamble. Like I said earlier, I don't mind taking risks sometimes when I build this. And I felt like I did with the army of Lake Town. I kind of gambled that 
my first opponent won't be a super experienced player and that even if that list gets selected i'll still be able to do okay and lords of battle being the first scenario it was the most likely for it to happen that way and for fog of war that one was a tricky one because both of my lists the heroes are all pretty small i don't think i have a I don't think I had a hero like over 70 points in either army. So that one was the one I was worried about the most because I felt like it was harder to protect a hero and it was also easier for my opponent to kill their target. So that one was kind of the scenario where I just had to kind of be okay with not building around that one. I felt like that was a trade-off because the other three scenarios, I felt more comfortable with the numbers and the marches that I had. Yeah, that was kind of my thought process. That was an interesting discussion between uh, pre-selected and randomized scenario. I think we all sort of agree that we enjoy the idea of both of them. And we definitely, I think locally, we like to switch it up between both types of tournaments. But they are really different and they do kind of make us build this in different ways. Thank you all for listening to this episode and uh, look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast. <laughs>